you're a visitor here today, welcome. Glad you're here with us. It's a joy for us to gather together any week that we have the opportunity to hear the Word of God. And so, uh, if you have not been with us, we've been walking through a series in 1 Thessalonians. The passage that Titus read is the next passage in line, which is in 1 Thessalonians 4. But as always, we're confident that the Word of God can work in a powerful way. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, Father, we are, as always, grateful to you and thankful for your amazing grace that we just sung about. We know that it's entirely it's entirely your grace that we're able to stand before you. It's entirely your grace that we're able to study your word together. It's entirely your grace that we're able to gather together today. As Q just prayed, we're reminded that for our brothers and sisters around the world, things aren't always so easy. We know that for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, this is probably a great time of uncertainty today, and certainly we pray for them. And we pray that you'd give them courage. We pray that you'd give them strength. We pray that you would allow them to hold fast to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. But we know that it's not just in the Ukraine. In countries all around the world, our brothers and sisters are being persecuted today. And we're praying that you would allow them to hold fast to the truth that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, we recognize that here, we don't face that type of persecution, at least not yet. And we're thankful that we have the opportunity to gather here freely. And we pray that we would not take that opportunity lightly, but rather that we would see it for the treasure that it is that a group of brothers and sisters in Christ can gather together to sing songs of worship to you, to hear your word preached, and to leave worshiping. Father, we pray that that's exactly what would happen today, that our hearts would not be moved by just intellectual knowledge, but rather that when we leave today, we would be worshiping you. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us. We thank you for your amazing grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So every year at the college I attended, our campus ministry hosted a large Christian conference known as the Main Event. Thousands of students would gather from across the Midwest for a weekend of biblical teaching, prayer, worship through song, fellowships, small group stuff, all the things that you would expect at a normal Christian conference. It was a pretty big deal, and the fact that it was a big deal I think is evidenced in part by the speakers that were at that event over the years, guys like John Piper, C.J. Mahaney, Louis Giglio, probably names that you may have heard of before. It's pretty amazing that all of these guys would come to the middle of nowhere in Cedar Falls, Iowa for a conference. It was certainly one of the things that I look forward to each year, and I know that for many people on our college campus, it was something that they looked forward to as well. But it wasn't just something that we looked forward to, it was something that was memorable and meaningful in many ways. Some of my friends, some of my dearest friends became Christians through what God did at the main event, and many other lives seemed to be altered as well. In fact, in the weeks after main event, it seemed that there was always a spiritual buzz on the campus. It seemed that more people were at campus ministry events. More people were praying. More people were talking about Jesus. But sadly, it usually did not last. As time went on, things would go back to normal. And that's not to say that some people's lives weren't legitimately changed forever, because they were. But it is to say that probably even for the vast majority of people, main event ended up being nothing more than what the name would suggest, a big event. That was it. An event that created a lot of spiritual buzz and a lot of excitement, but in the end, just another conference. And I guess, I guess that's normal, although I think it's sad, but I think it's normal. But what I noticed over the years that was even more troubling is that there were certainly a group of people involved in our campus ministry who became dependent upon these types of events to get going spiritually. And so usually this is how it would work. For the majority of the year, they would not be living for Christ, but then an event like main event or some other event would come along, and for a few weeks they would be back on track spiritually. 
and it would seem like everything was going well, and then before long, they'd be back to their old patterns. And then it would come another event, and for a few weeks, they'd be back on track, and then they would go back to their old patterns, and this cycle would repeat itself over and over. And on a smaller scale, I would suggest that this thing probably happens every week in churches across America. A person goes to church on Sunday, and by church, I I know the, the New Testament, when it talks about church, it's really talking about people. But I also understand that when we use the word church, we're talking about a worship service or a building. So I'm using it in that way. But when we go to church, I've noticed that oftentimes people get really excited on Sunday, but as the week goes on, that excitement begins to fade. By Tuesday, things are back to normal. And that passion for Christ, which seems so evident on Sunday, is quickly rejected or replaced by the concerns and anxieties of the world. But is that what Christianity is supposed to look like? Is Christianity meant to be an event-to-event religion? Is Christianity meant to be a Sunday-to-Sunday religion? Is Christianity meant to be a church service-to-church service religion? Or is it meant to be something else? I would guess that you probably know what my answer to that question is. My answer is that it is supposed to look differently. Christianity is not meant to be an event-to-event religion. It's not meant to be a church service-to-church service religion. It's not meant to be a Sunday-only affair. On the contrary, I would argue that Christianity is meant to be lived out every single day and in every single aspect of our life. And I think we see that throughout Scripture, but we certainly see it in our passage today. So let's read again, 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to argue today that oftentimes the battle for Christianity is won or lost in the mundane, everyday aspects of life. It's not just in the big things, but it's in the small things that we live out our Christianity. And I think we see that in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 9. It says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Now this passage is an extension of the passage we talked about last week. The beginning of 1 Thessalonians 4, you may remember that in verse 1, Paul instructs the Thessalonians to live in a way that pleases God. And then in verse 3, he uttered the memorable phrase that we talked about for the majority of last week, that the will of God is our sanctification. We said that sanctification is just a fancy way of saying that we would grow in Christ's likeness. And so verse 3 was in essence an argument that what God wants for us is to become more like Christ. Now we talked about this at length last week, but all of that is grounded in the fact that we are saved by grace alone. It's because of our justification, which is another fancy Christian word that simply means that we are declared to be righteous before God. It's because of our justification meaning we were declared righteous before God because of what Jesus did, that we would want to live out our sanctification. That's what we talked about last week. And I think verses 9 through 12 are building on that. Now, if you remember last week, the one example he gave of an area which this works itself out, this desire for holiness, was to abstain from sexual immorality. I think there's a reason he started there, because that was an issue the Thessalonians were struggling with. But that's not the only area of holiness that Paul is concerned with. And that's where verses 9 through 12 comes into play. In verses 9 through 12, he gives four additional areas in which he wants us to live out our holiness. Now, the first one is exactly what you would expect Paul to say. If you were to read the Bible and guess, okay, what thing might he say that we should do in order to live out holiness, you would expect that he would say something like, we should love one another. And that's exactly what he says. 
The other three are a little bit more surprising. But for now, let's stick with the one that's less surprising, and that's this, that we should love one another more and more. Look again at verses 9 and 10, and listen carefully to what he says. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Now, if you've been with us over the course of the last seven weeks as we've been in the book of 1 Thessalonians, this is not at all surprising that Paul would tell the Thessalonians this. Over and over and over again in the book of Thessalonians, he has talked about his love for the Thessalonians, and he has urged them to love one another. In fact, I would argue, not only if you've been here for this series, but if you've read the Bible at all, you know that this is a theme throughout the New Testament. That as Christians, we are to love one another. That we are to set aside our interests for one another and to care deeply about one another. So this is not surprising in the least that Paul would say the Thessalonians should love one another more and more. But just because it's expected doesn't mean that we should overlook it. In fact, there's some pretty interesting things that he says here. Starting with the way he describes this love. Look at verse 9 at the very beginning, just the first phrase. He says, now concerning brotherly love. Now, the Greek word that's used here for brotherly love is the word Philadelphia, which you probably recognize. It's the city to the south of here, Philadelphia. There's a reason why Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love, and it's not necessarily because Philadelphia is a loving city. I've never been there, but I've heard that it's a tough place to go. Chase from there, he's tough, so I think, I think it must be a tough place. But Chase has definitely shown me brotherly love. Anyway, I digress, right? Like, the point is, the reason why it was called Philadelphia is because it's the, or the reason why it's called the city of brotherly love is because the Greek word Philadelphia means brotherly love. Now, here's what's interesting about Paul using this word here. What's interesting about this is that in the time of the Thessalonians, it would be almost unheard of that this word would be used to describe any relationship outside of the immediate family. In other words, the idea of brotherly love was used almost exclusively to describe relationships within the immediate family. Husband, wife, brother, sister, father, mother, son, daughter, those types of relationships. The fact that it would be used here would be almost unheard of in this culture. And the fact that Paul does use this word to describe the relationships between church members is yet another reminder to us of the radical nature of the relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. I said this a few weeks ago, but it's worth saying. The church is not meant to be a loosely organized religious club. That's not the picture in the New Testament at all. The word that he uses here is the same word that he would use to describe relationships within the family. The church is meant to be a family. And we know this, that family can sometimes be messy. Right? Family can sometimes be stressful. But generally speaking, we love our family and we are involved in their lives. And so just as I said a couple of weeks ago, I think it's, it's worth repeating again. If we get to the point where we understand this and we start seeing each other as family, that will radically change the way that we look. And it will radically change the way we look to outsiders as well. It will certainly change the way we interact with one another. If we see each other as family, we will regularly pray for one another. If we see each other as family, we'll start getting involved in each other's, fam- in each other's lives just like you get involved in your family's lives. We will start caring for one another just like we care for our families. And something I might add that we haven't discussed before, I would say this, if we are going to be a family, then I think what will happen is we'll start being real with each other, just like we're real with our families. Listen, if anyone knows you, it's your immediate family. 
If I wanted to know what you were really like, I would ask your spouse. If I wanted to know what your character really consisted of, I would ask your parents, or I would ask your children, or I would ask the people that you live with every day. Our family knows our greatest strengths, but they also know our greatest weaknesses. Our family knows the areas that we're excelling in. They also know the areas that we're struggling in. Our family knows the areas that we're doing well, but they also know the areas that we're struggling. They see our beauty, but they also see our warts. And I would suggest that if we are going to be a family as a church, the same thing should be true here too. That the church should be a place where it's okay for us to be who we really are and where it's okay for us to admit we are messed up. Listen, I want you to know that I am messed up. So I'll just start with me. I've definitely got areas that I need to improve. I care way too much about the approval of people. Oftentimes I place it over the approval of God. I can be really impatient sometimes, especially with my kids. And some days I wake up and I'm just plain cranky. And I would guess that probably some of those things are true for you too. And to be honest, those are just the tip of the iceberg. There's many more things that I struggle with and there's many more things that I know you struggle with also. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that every person in this room has an area that they are struggling in. We are all messed up. But here's what I find really odd, is that oftentimes when we gather together as a church, and I'm not just saying this about New Hope, but about every church I've ever been a part of, when we gather together, we pretend as if we've all got it together. Which is strange. And here's why it's strange. Isn't the whole reason that we are a church and why we gather together because we recognize that we are sinful and we desperately need a Savior? Isn't that the reason why we gather or why we decide that we are going to be church members? Because we recognize that we are messed up and we desperately need the love of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the whole purpose of the church? That we recognize that we cannot do it on our own? That we desperately need His grace? So why is it, if that's true, that when we gather together, we act as if we've all got it together? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. We know that we are messed up and we know that we are sinful. That is why we praise a great Savior. So since we're family, let's just start putting our cards on the table. Let's just start admitting that we have work to do. All of us. But let's not be content to stay that way. I've heard Pastor Matt Chandler say this before, and I think it's helpful. It's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. And I think that's true. It's okay for us to be messed up. It's okay for admit we are struggling in this area. It's just not okay to be content with that and say, well, we're just going to be like that forever. So it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. And so let's keep that in mind. Let's be family. Let's be real with one another. Let's be honest about our struggles. But let's not be content to just wallow in our sin. After all, the will of God, as we learned earlier in this passage in chapter 4, the will of God is our holiness. So as a family, let's be real. Let's stop pretending that we're something we're not, but let's also be willing to help each other grow. Listen, we recognize that we're saved by grace alone. That it's only because of what Jesus did that we could ever stand before God. It's the grace of God, period, that allows us to stand before God with confidence. We are justified or declared to be righteous only on the basis of his work. But if that's true, we will be motivated to live differently. We will be motivated to live in a way that is increasingly Christ-like. And if we're family, we'll encourage each other to do this more and more. Listen, we're motivated by the gospel, and that leads to the next thing we see here about this love. And that's that this love is taught to us by God. Look at verse 9. 
Again, verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So how is it that God taught the Thessalonians to love one another? Most commentators are, are arguing that there's one of three things happening here. Either this is a reference to the fact that Jesus taught that we should love one another, which he certainly did, or it's a reference to the Spirit convicting us of a need to love one another, or it's a reference to the fact that God gave us an example of how to love in sending his son Jesus. I tend to think as it relates to this passage, it's a combination of the last two. That we are taught by God to love one another, and that the Spirit leads us, and that God has given us an example. One of the ways that the Spirit will work in us, the the Bible consistently says that if you are a believer in Christ, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. And one of the ways that the Spirit of God will dwell in you is that He will give you new desires. And one of those desires will be to set aside your own interests and to live for others. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8 says it this way, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So God teaches us to love by giving us his spirit. And that spirit puts within us, or gives within us, a new desire to love other believers in Christ. To say it negatively, if there's no desire in you to care about the other people in this room, that's a potential sign that you may not actually know God. That's exactly what 1 John 4 is saying. Because if the Spirit of God is in us, it will give us a desire to set aside our own interests and to love the other people in this room. So I think that's one way in which God teaches us how to love. The other is that he gives us the example. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. Again, 1 John 4, this time verse 19, says it this way. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So here's the reason why we love other people, why we love other Christians, because God first loved us. We don't love other people just because it's the right thing to do, although it is. And we don't love other people just because the Bible tells us to, although it does. No, ultimately, the reason we love other people and we care about them and we have a genuine interest in their welfare is because Jesus Christ first loved us. We understand, if we get the gospel, that we were utterly unlovable, and yet God loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. And when we understand that, and when we believe that deep down, that God loved us even when we were unlovely. Romans 5 talks about the fact that he loved us while we were still his enemies. If we understand that, then we will be free to love others. If you think that the only time you can love people is when they deserve it, either you will be lonely because you'll realize no one really deserves it, or you'll be naive thinking that no one has any faults. As I remember when Tanya and I were undergoing premarital counseling, as part of our marriage, um, the guy who was marrying us said that we had to go through these seven or eight sessions of premarital counseling. His name was Dave Brooks. He was a great guy. When we were undergoing counseling, I think I heard everything that he said. And it's not that I disagreed with anything he said. In fact, I agreed with most of the principles he was saying. But deep down, I don't think I really believed that I needed to hear what he was saying. And here's why. Because I was convinced that we were in love. And that Tanya would be the perfect wife, and that I would be the perfect husband, and that every morning we would wake up and I would gaze in her eyes lovingly, and she would return the gaze, and we would never have any conflict. And then we got married, and that reality was quickly shattered, right? Because I realized, and she realized, that I was a lot more sinful 
than she thought that I was. And I realized that she was a lot more sinful than I thought she was. And we both realized that individually, we had a lot more to work on than we thought. And when that reality set in, things got really difficult. Our, our, our first two years of marriage, to be honest, were pretty miserable. I know that some, and I've talked to some who their first couple years of marriage are, are, have been great, and praise God when that happens, but that was not the case for us. The first two years were really hard for us. But here's what changed things. What changed things is that the gospel of Jesus Christ started to seep down deeper into our hearts. It's not that we weren't Christians before. It's just that we began to understand the gospel and we began to apply it to our marriage. What changed wasn't that I became more lovable or that Tanya became more lovable, although I hope we were both growing in holiness. But what happened is that we started to understand what Jesus had done for us. We began to see that Christ loved us even when we were unlovable. That even when we were his enemies, he died for us. And I began to realize as a husband that my job is to love my wife in the same way that Christ loved me. It's directly taken from Ephesians 5. And when that happened, and when Tanya started to see that also, that changed everything in our marriage. It wasn't just that I was to love her when she was lovable or that she was to love me when I was lovable. It's that we were to love each other like Christ loved us. And when that happened, we went from two needy people desperately needing the approval of one another to two people looking to show the love of Christ to one another. And that changed everything. Now, that's not to say that we don't go back to our old selfish ways sometimes. In fact, I feel pretty confident, not even having thought about specifics, that at some point this week, we went back to our old selfish ways and we had an argument. In fact, yep, I know we did. I know we had a couple, actually. Right? And honestly, I could stand up here every Sunday and say the same thing, but what I can say is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed us. It's made a difference. What I'm arguing is that same principle should apply to our relationships in the church. That we should love each other because Christ first loved us. That we should love one another like family, not because the other people that are part of New Hope Fellowship deserve that type of love, but because that's exactly how Christ loved us. He brought us into the family even when we were undeserving. And that's why we love one another like family. And when that happens, that's why we pray for one another. That's why we look for ways to go out of our way to serve one another. That's why we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Why we encourage one another to look to Christ. It means why we correct one another at times because we love one another. It means that we love one another to talk about Christ regularly and we love one another to help one another find the joy in Christ. Listen, it's because Christ first loved us that we love one another. That's the motivation. We do all those things because Christ first loved us. That is why we love each other like family. Not because every person in this room deserves to be loved by family, but because that's exactly how Jesus loved us. Which I would add, if you don't know the love of Christ, it's going to be impossible to love in that way. Listen, I don't know what brought you here today. I don't know everyone's background who's here today. I don't know if you personally know Christ. I don't know if you've ever come to the point where you've recognized that you are a sinner and you desperately need a Savior. But if you have never come to that point, I'm begging of you today, turn to Christ so you can find salvation. Until you do, you will never be able to experience true love, and you will never be able to love others in a true way either. But if you do that, then it will only follow that you will begin to love others. That's what Christianity looks like. There's a reason why Paul keeps coming back to this. 
This keeps coming back over and over to this idea of loving one another. Because this is a really important issue. In John 13, Jesus said it this way, By this all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's never lose sight of that. Let's make it our goal to love like family. Now that said, the fact that Paul would encourage the Thessalonians to love one another more and more, this is exactly what you'd expect. And to talk about holiness, you'd expect him to say that. But what he says next is a little less expected. In fact, it's pretty surprising. Look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, he says this, And to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. All right, so again, if we go back to verse 1 of chapter 4, the first two things that Paul says about holiness or about sanctification make complete sense. That we should abstain from sexual morality. We admitted last week that that's it's a bit awkward to talk about, but we certainly see the relevance of it. This is an issue that's really hard. And the second one, love one another, that too is expected. After that, though, you'd expect a list of things like we should pray, or we should read our Bibles, or we should gather with the church, or we should tell other people about Jesus, or we should serve the poor, and all of those things would make complete sense. But that's not what Paul says here. Instead, when he gives another example of what it means to pursue holiness, he says to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. Now, incidentally, some people would say work with your hands. He's encouraging manual labor. I think he's just encouraging hard work here, although manual labor might be part of that. But he says to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. This is not what you would expect to find. If you were to ask someone, what does it look like to be holy? What does it look like to live more like Christ? I would guess it would be a really long time before you would get to lists like this. Live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. But I think it's a perfect illustration, and in fact, the reason why I opened the sermon talking about this, it's a perfect illustration of the fact that Christianity is meant to be lived out every single day and in every single aspect of our life. Listen, I've known plenty of people over the years who've talked about Christianity like this. That Christianity is something that they attend to on Sundays and maybe on days when they gather with their care group, but the rest of the week is their time. But that is not how the Bible views Christianity. All of life is spiritual. Your Christianity is lived out in day-to-day things like living quietly, minding your own affairs, and working hard. Now, we don't know why exactly Paul tells the Thessalonians to do this. Some have speculated that because of their uncertainty about the second coming of Christ, which starting next week we will start to dive into that in depth, that because of that they were maybe under the impression that the return of Christ was imminent. In other words, that it might come any day or any week or any month. And so because of that, there's some who would say that it's, it's probable, if it's at least plausible, but maybe even probable, that they'd stopped working. They thought that Jesus was going to come back tomorrow. And so they thought, well, we'll just stop working. And if you piece that together with 2 Thessalonians, it seems that some of them had stopped working and instead had become busybodies. They started getting involved in everyone else's business. Instead of worrying about their own relationship with Christ, they were gossiping and they were meddling and they were not concerned about their own walk with Christ. They were just getting involved in everyone else's walk. And so that's probably why Paul says to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work hard. But if you think about it, that's about as practical as you can get, right? It's a great reminder to us that all of life is spiritual. Listen, oftentimes we like to think of our lives in little compartments. Right? So imagine that you have a little container here. Right? We have a container that we put all of our spiritual things in. 
This is our spiritual container. Church on Sundays, maybe reading the Bible care groups. We put it in this container. And then we have a work container, right? So the spiritual container stays here. And we have the work container. Everything pertaining to work is here. And then we have our family life, right? So we have our spiritual life. This is one thing. Our work life, this is one thing. And then our family life. And then over here, maybe we have our social life and then our personal life, right? We have all of these containers and all of them seem to be individualized. In other words, they don't cross over. Right? Okay, here's spiritual life, here's work life, here's family life, here's personal life, here's social life. But that is not the way that the Bible looks at the Christian walk. The Christian walk is not meant to be compartmentalized like that. We're not meant to have these containers. All of life is spiritual. All of life is spiritual. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you go into work, you have to start the day by preaching a sermon. Right? That's not what that means. But what it does mean is that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything and that none of these containers whether it's work or whether it's family or whether it's your personal life or whether it's your social life none of these things should be unaffected by the gospel of jesus christ all of life is spiritual all of our life is to be changed by the gospel so let me give you an example that's that's probably insignificant in the big scheme of things but maybe will be helpful all right, when we lived in texas i shoveled snow once in five years all right, um, now, it snowed some, but as you probably noticed if you've seen the storms in Alabama, when it snows in the south, they just don't have the infrastructure in place to take care of it, right? So anytime the snow comes, the city just shut down. And by the time the city got going again, usually the snow would be melted enough that I wouldn't ever have to shovel. So one time in five years, I had to shovel snow. So needless to say, this winter has been a little bit of a shock to my system. Right? I had to go back to my old Iowa roots. And at first, I'll be honest and say it was a little bit difficult to adjust to that. Uh, the first couple of times it was snowing. Now, thankfully, we have a snowblower, which obviously makes it go much quicker. But I was thinking, oh, man, this is, this is going to be a long winter. And indeed, it has been a long winter, no doubt. But <clears throat> the first couple of times were not near as bad as when we got the first big snow. Right? So as I mentioned, our landlord provides a snowblower. So usually it's not that big a deal to get rid of the snow. But if there's a huge snow... That doesn't exactly happen. We have a driveway and we have a sidewalk and both of them are fairly long. And because we live on one of the busiest streets in Mount Kisco and one of the hilliest, the plows are very quick to come to our area. And they salt down the area, they, they put sand on the area, and then they plow it all onto our sidewalk. So because they put so much salt and they put so much sand on the area, by the time it gets onto our sidewalks, it, it, sidewalk, it is extremely, extremely slushy and extremely heavy. And so the first time we got whatever it was, eight or nine inches of snow, by the time I got my snowblower down there, I discovered that I could not use my snowblower and that I was going to have to shovel the whole thing by hand. Now, that's hard work. It's hard work in part because the, the sidewalk is really long, but also because we have this uh, stone wall that goes along the sidewalk. And as you go down the hill, it gets taller and taller. And so if you're going to shovel, I can't shovel onto the street, although believe me, I've been tempted many times to just shovel on the street. I have to throw it over this big, giant concrete wall, right? So it's like, at points, it's taller than I am. And so I have to chuck it like this over the wall. So when I said a couple weeks ago in passing that my shoulder muscles are stronger, I wasn't kidding. I'm definitely stronger from this winter. So the first time we did this, it took me about two hours to clear the sidewalk. Now, uh, now, I know when I tell a story like this, there's always someone who has a crazier story, right? Like, there's someone who's probably like, yeah, well, it takes me 24 hours to shovel the sidewalk, and, and my wall's 16 foot tall. And in addition, the snow plows and, and besides salt and, and sand, they also put concrete on my sidewalk. Well, if that's you, I'm just saying congratulations. But for this Texas boy, this has been hard work, all right? This has been difficult. 
And so here's what I found happening the first time this happened. About a quarter of the way down the sidewalk, that maybe give myself too much credit, a little bit down the sidewalk, right? Like, I started thinking to myself, and I started complaining in my head, and just started muttering. I started saying things like, why does it have to snow so much? And why is this wall so tall? And why does my landlord care about this so much? And why do they plow it right onto the sidewalk? And do all these people really need to use the sidewalk? Can't they get to the train station some other way, right? Like, I'm thinking all of these obviously irrational things in my head. But about halfway down the sidewalk, something changed. Something changed. And and I'm not saying that um, this always happened. I'm just saying this was the grace of God. About halfway down the sidewalk, a verse popped in my head. And this was the Holy Spirit. I've no doubt the Holy Spirit was putting this verse in my heart. It was Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as if working for the Lord and not for men. And that verse at that moment had a profound impact on my snow shoveling. It changed everything. Suddenly, I wasn't shoveling snow for my landlord. And I wasn't shoveling snow for the city of Mount Kisco, so I wouldn't get a fine. And I wasn't shoveling snow for the people who wanted to walk on the sidewalk, although all those things would be fine motives. But I was shoveling snow for the king. For the king. The king who served me at great cost to himself. The king who served me and in return was spit on, mocked, ridiculed, and eventually crucified on the cross. That's who I was serving. That's who I was shoveling snow for. And at that point, my motivation shifted completely. Instead of just thinking, let's finish this, I thought to myself, I'm going to do the best job I can because I want to bring glory to God. Not for the praise of men, not so I don't get fined, not so people can walk on the sidewalk, but because I want to reflect what Christ has done for me. Now that said, I, don't want to give you, I, don't, I do not want to give you this false impression that I'm a Christ-centered, snow-shoveling robot, Okay. Um, there are times where I still complain. And in fact, although I'd like to think that I'm motivated by the glory of God, I still hold out hope sometimes as I'm shoveling and people are walking by that someone is going to stop and say, you are doing a fantastic job on this. <laughs> but then I remind myself, I live in New York. That's probably not going to happen. Right? I also think to myself sometimes, you know, I'd like to think I'm eager to serve. But I have to be honest, I frequently check the weather report. And when I see a big snow coming, my heart starts to fill with a little bit of anxiety. So I'm still a work in progress. Hear me. But the point of this is that the gospel should impact everything, even things like snow shoveling. Listen, even if no one ever knows, I know that he will know. And whatever you do, if it's accounting, then do your accounting for the glory of God. If you're a doctor, practice medicine because you recognize what the king did for you. If you're a lawyer, practice law in a way that brings glory to him. Whatever it is that you do, whatever your job is, whatever it is you do on a day-to-day basis, remember this, that you are reflecting the king wherever you go. And that you are responding to the grace that he has shown you. Again, that doesn't mean that you have to preach a sermon every time you walk into work or every time you walk into your school if you're a student. Now, at times it might mean that you do talk about Christ. But what it does mean is that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. And we're motivated to do this to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with our hands, because as verse 12 says, it helps us to live properly before outsiders, and it means that we don't have to be dependent on others either. That's where the hard work comes in. But more than anything, the reason why we're motivated to live this way with the gospel impacting everything is because we know what Jesus did for us. And everywhere we go, we want to be the fragrance of Christ. Listen, the battle for Christianity is one in the typical things. Yeah, sure, reading your Bible, praying, going to church, 
loving one another, those are a huge part of what it means to live for Christ. But it's also one in the day-to-day battle of nitty-gritty living. Living quietly, minding your own affairs, working hard. One of the godliest people I ever met was a 50-some-year-old teacher. I don't know much. I never heard her give a big theological talk. I don't think that she'll ever be someone that you'll ever hear of. She's not going to be a speaker at a National Women's Conference. But she loved Jesus. She prayed like crazy. And she was exceptional at her job. And the reason I know this is because over the years, some of the students who had her in elementary school started coming to our church. And they would tell me about this lady, and they would say, she was the best teacher. She was always, always just doing everything she could to help us be better students. She had this reputation in the community for working exceptionally hard and for doing everything she could to be the best teacher. It didn't mean that she went in every time she had a class and she gave the gospel, right, or that she gave a gospel presentation. What it meant is that she worked hard, and eventually people started to wonder, why is she like this? And the student who came to our ministry who was telling me about her said, the reason why she came to our church is because she found out later that her teacher, who she loved so much, was a Christian, and she wanted to know more about that guy. That is Christianity. That's the essence of Christianity, right? It's living out Christ in our everyday lives. It's putting him first in everything. Christianity is not meant to be just an event-to-event religion or Sunday-to-Sunday religion. It's an everyday, every aspect, every part of our life religion. And the reason why it's that way is because the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. There is no aspect that is left untouched. If he really did die for us, and if he really did set us free from our bondage to sin, how could we not want to live for him in all things? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we know that changes everything including what we're doing today. We know that the reason we're gathered here today is not because of some rote religious exercise, but because we really do believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we want to celebrate that, and we want to remind each other of that, and we want to sing about that today. We want to be able to say to one another, Jesus rose from the dead. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that your son died, and we're praying that it would change everything about us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.